Hello and welcome to the Monobank History of Scotland podcast, a series of comedy podcasts about Scotland's history, funny enough, hey, weird that. Uh, my name is Daniel, I am your host, I am a stand-up comedian from the fair city of Edinburgh, or Edinburgh, for my American friends who are listening. Uh, it really is a bonny place, you should consider relocating here when you are forced to flee the hellscape that is your country right now, uh, with that horrible racist orange man who is the president. Uh, Of course, we do have racist orange men here in Scotland as well. They are equally as fucking mental. They are equally as right-wing, but uh, instead of guns, they got flutes. You know, so they don't seem that intimidating when you put it that way. Do you know what I mean? Orange men with flutes, it could easily just be Loompas, couldn't it? Um, Anyway, this is a series of podcasts about Scotland's history. Uh, I should point out that I, as you probably already have gathered, if this is your first time listening to the podcast, I'm not an academic historian. I'm not like the other Dan's, Dan Carlin or or, uh, Dan Snow, right? But in the before times... Uh, before COVID and all that horrible stuff, I uh, I did a comedy walking tour of Edinburgh called the Montebank Comedy Walk of Edinburgh, where I would take people around the city, I would tell them all about Edinburgh, and most importantly, I'd try and make them laugh. And that's what this podcast is. Uh, you are hopefully going to laugh a lot and learn just a wee bit. Uh, it is, you don't need to listen kind of week to week. And, and what I mean by that is it, it all goes chronologically. So if you are tuning in for the first time, my advice would be go back to go to the start of the series, go to episode one and listen to it um, from there. Uh, today's episode is all about Macbeth. Um, of course, made famous uh, by the actor Robert Carlyle, Hamish Macbeth. He goes around solving crimes in the uh, fictional village of Loch Du in the Highlands with an adorable wee West Highland Terrier called Jock. Um, that's a joke, obviously. I'm talking about the Macbeth. Uh, Shakespeare's Macbeth was an actual real Scottish king. And I'm going to tell you a bit about the Shakespeare's version. I'm going to tell you a bit about the real life Celtic Scottish King Macbeth as well I do hope you enjoy folks uh, have fun and I shall see you on the other side enjoy people are often uh, surprised to hear or surprised to learn that Macbeth he wasn't a, a fictitious character that was made up by William Shakespeare he was a real life King of Scotland that existed in the 11th century it's a very uh, similar reaction that I had when I seen Braveheart for the first time as a kid because here was me like I could not believe that there was an actual, real-life, swashbuckling, kilt-wearing, Australian man and top shagger going around there with his lethal weapon, putting it about the place, and just taking on bodies and trying to liberate our country from the English. Like, here was me thinking that white Europeans only made it to Australia in the 17th century as well. It it really was unbelievable, you know? See See the title of that film, by the way? I'm obviously talking about Mel Gibson, right? Braveheart. The, the, the title Braveheart, it uh, has nothing to do with William Wallace. It's actually to do with Robert the Bruce, right? On Robert the Bruce's death, he his dying wish was that his heart be taken to the Holy Land. So his, uh, his right man, his right-hand man is like the top boy um, during his campaigns, a guy called James Douglas, the Black Douglas he was known as. He was tasked with taking Robert the Bruce's heart to the Holy Land, right? But there was no crusades going on at the time. And the nearest... The nearest Muslims that Douglas could pick a fight with were uh, the Moors in the south of Spain, right? So uh, James Douglas, he goes to the south of Spain and he's he's facing off against the Moors, right? And facing his, his, his almost certain death, what he does is James Douglas, he takes the heart of Robert the Bruce, he throws it in front of his charging horse and he shouts, Onward, brave heart, before he charges 
towards the enemy in his final last act. You know, I mean, that is, that's properly impressive, isn't it? I'm not talking about the act of bravery charging towards the enemy. I'm talking about how impressive is it that a film is so inaccurate that even its title is incorrect. Even its title is fucking inaccurate. I find that amazing. And William Shakespeare, he's just as guilty as Mel Gibson is of, of playing equally as hard and fast with the, the facts of Scottish history. But there is a good reason for that. You see, William Shakespeare, when he wrote Macbeth, it was in the early 17th century, which coincided with the Union of the Crowns. So basically, in 1603, James VI of Scotland, he inherits the throne of England, and he becomes James I of England. And so Shakespeare, he needed to write a play that would appeal to this new Scottish king of England, which is why he wrote about a Scottish king from the past. It's also the reason why William uh, Shakespeare included the witches in the story, because he knew that James was completely and utterly obsessed with all things kind of sorcery and witchcraft based. In 1597, James wrote a book called Demonology, which laid out all of his strange ideas about sorcery and witches and witchcraft. It was very much a kind of mind camp for witches. Do you know what I mean? Like, just replace the word Jews with witches and, you know, you're pretty much there. Now, that's actually something that uh, that James and Mel Gibson have in common, isn't it? You know, like, James thought everything was the fault of the witches, and uh, and Mel, he thinks everything's the fault of the Jews, doesn't he? Aye. So, to give you an example, right, uh, of of another time when, when Shakespeare had kind of altered the reality of, of uh, history before he had written Macbeth, an example will be in his play Richard III, right? So Richard III, he's this really repulsive, Machiavellian, kind of humpback type um, of character. This is this is back in the days when, uh, when Queen Elizabeth weren't attracted to that type of character, you know? Uh, it wasn't considered as... It was considered pretty taboo, pretty nasty back then, right? And Richard... Richard III, he wasn't a nice lad. Like, let's not get it wrong, but he wasn't this kind of repulsive, horrible, grotesque type character. But the reason why Shakespeare wrote him that way is because, I mean, A, he knew that Elizabeth I was a stickler for good posture. And B, the main thing was that Elizabeth was uh, was one of the Tudor monarchs, right? And so Richard, he was the last of the Yorkist kings of England. Uh, their enemies were the Lancastrians. And the Tudors, they came under the Lancastrians. So it made sense for Shakespeare to write this play to make Richard really kind of grotesque, to basically kind of butter up the Queen. And obviously, like, this is things that, that go on to this day, do you know what I mean? Like, um, it, is, it is completely normal, especially in these times, to kind of alter reality to, to suit a, a particular political agenda. Shakespeare was very much the kind of Cambridge analytica of his day, but thankfully he didn't do or didn't come up with anything as nonsensical as suggesting that, for example, Macbeth wasn't even Scottish, do you know what I mean? Like, having Duncan Pestrum for his birth certificate. Like, even Shakespeare would have found that ridiculous. But the reason why Macbeth is portrayed as, as in the play, very kind of power-hungry, villainous, murderous, usurper of the throne, 
It suited, played into the hands of the anti-Catholic sentiments of England at the time that Macbeth was performed. Now, Macbeth was performed for the first time, they think, in 1606, which was the year after the infamous gunpowder plot, Guy Fawkes and all that, the attempt to blow up the Houses of Parliament. So there was real fear of Catholics and Catholicism. So having the Celtic king Macbeth portrayed as this kind of madman, this crazy usurper of the throne, and the heroes of the play being the descendants of the new king, James VI. It's suggested throughout the play that James, the current king, is descended from one of the characters, Banco. It was very much fitting with the political landscape of the time. But the truth is, the real Macbeth, the last truly Celtic king of Scotland, he was actually a very popular and revered king. Macbeth is known to have given to the poor. He was the first Scottish king to go on pilgrimage which might not sound like that big a deal, but listen, for a Scottish king to go away and leave Scottish people with a massive empty for two years and for the place not to get wrecked, I personally think that's impressive. Do you know what I mean, I, I do not think that Nicola would be leaving us on a loan not, or leaving us on our own, not without leaving a key with a neighbour at least. In the theatre, it is, uh, it's actually bad luck to say the name of the play, to say Macbeth out loud. Uh, it's cursed cursed, uh, the, the play is cursed which makes perfect sense to me, you know, like of all of William Shakespeare's plays, of course it's the Scottish one that's cursed, I feel like I feel like William Shakespeare must have had like a pre-image of, uh, of Scottish World Cup qualifying campaigns 400 years later, you know, so you're not you're not supposed to say Macbeth in a theatre um, and if you do say his name out loud, if you say his name out loud three times then he appears and he kills you uh, no, that's. Uh, I think I'm getting Macbeth mixed up with the Candyman there. Basically, as far as I can tell, uh, working in the theatre, Macbeth um, is kind of similar to. It's kind of similar to like a, a paedophile operating at the BBC in the 1970s. You know, and as much as everyone involved in the production knows what's going on, but it's considered bad form to actually say it out loud. You know, so instead, what you've got to do is you've got to refer to the play as the Scottish play. Which I th I, plain, I think is plainly ridiculous, to be honest with you, because there's nothing Scottish about Macbeth. Like, at no point does William Shakespeare even use the C word throughout the entire play. Pfft. Not Scottish at all. So in Shakespeare's Macbeth, Macbeth is a, a general in the army of the beloved Scottish king, Duncan I. And he's returning from a successful battle, and he's travelling across a blasted heath, as you day, right? Uh, presumably he was flying Ryanair, and that's the sort of place it sounds like they would end up. Um, he's travelling across this blasted heath with his fellow, his fellow general, his pal Banquo, and uh, the two of them, they come across these three witches who make proclamations regarding his and Banquo's futures. To Banquo, the witches tell him that he was not going to be king, but he will bear future kings. Nudge, nudge, hint, hint, wink, wink, James I. And to Macbeth, the witches first proclaim him Thane of Glamis, which is a title that he's just inherited. They then proclaim him Thane of Cawdor, which is a title that uh, Duncan has yet to bestow upon Macbeth. And then finally, they declare him King Thereafter. And pretty soon after that, uh, two messengers arrive and they tell Macbeth that the Thane of Cawdor, he was a traitor. And he's to, be, uh, he's to be executed and punished by Duncan. And because of his bravery and his leadership in battle, Macbeth, he shall inherit the title of Thane of Cawdor in his place. And so with true truths complete, Macbeth, he writes to his wife, telling her about his encounter with the witches and telling her that the king, Duncan, is to come and stay with them at their castle in Inverness. 
And so Lady Macbeth, she starts to work on um, her husband. She starts to encourage him to kill the king when he comes to stay with him. Make sure that you kill him and fulfil the witch's prophecy. Macbeth, he's unsure about it, but Lady Macbeth, she's constantly at him. She's pushing him, persuading him, questioning his manhood, all that kind of thing. It's very offensive to Scottish women, to be honest with you folks. You know, like the suggestion that a Scottish woman would encourage her husband to kill someone as opposed to just you know, dane it themselves. That's uh, that's ridiculous. Like, I, I live in fear every single evening when I go to bed that my uh, fiancé may potentially kill me in my sleep. Do you know, if I leave another drawer open, then I'm fucking done for, you know? And so, um, the, the king, Duncan, he comes to stay with them in their castle in Inverness, and, of course, they kill the king. Macbeth, he's very shaken by the whole um, episode, and he starts to he starts to hallucinate, see strange things. Like he imagines these floating daggers, for example. It's very twin twin peak esque. Um, well, to be fair, if there's a part of Scotland that is very twin peak esque, it would be Inverness. And mindful of the the witch's prophecy that Banquo would not be king, but uh, he would he would bear future kings. Uh, Macbeth. He starts to panic and so he sends assassins to kill Banquo and his son Fleance. But Fleance, he manages to escape. So Macbeth is completely paranoid about his security as king after the witch's prophecy that Banquo would produce future kings. So he goes back to the witches because they're kind of like his political advisors by this point. You know, they're kind of like his, they're very similar to Dominic Cummings, you know, in as much as all of their advice is pure fucking evil and will almost certainly result in a lot of people dying as a result of it. And this time, uh, the witches, they tell Macbeth that he should be wary of uh, Guy Macduff, the Thane of Fife, who's loyal to Duncan. And uh, as well as being aware of Macduff, he doesn't need to be too concerned because no man of woman born can possibly harm him and he will not be defeated until Burnham Wood moves towards Dunsinane Hill. And uh, Macbeth, he's pretty happy with this new advice, you know, considering that, I mean, all men are women born, right? And forests, they can't move um, unless it's in straight lines, which is a very good joke about James Forrest, the Celtic and Scotland midfielder, because that wee guy can only run in straight lines, I can tell you that. And so um, Macbeth, now acting like a kind of cartel boss, he uh, he has Macduff's family murdered, right? Macduff, he goes down to England to uh, to raise an army, um, with Duncan's heir, Malcolm, who had escaped. Um, and in his absence, Macbeth just kills his whole family, as you did, right? And so, here's the thing. So, basically, Macduff and Malcolm, they raise an army to march north and take their revenge on Macbeth. Now, I reckon that... Uh, I would like to think, ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this, that you're the same as me, right? If I was given an incredibly specific and strange prophecy by three witches about Burnham Wood moving towards Dunsinane Castle, you better believe that I would build, I would avoid Dunsinane like the fucking plague. I wouldn't be going anywhere near that place, right? But of course, that's exactly where Macbeth goes next. And in the meantime, Lady Macbeth, she starts to descend into psychosis, right? She, uh, she, goes, she goes a bit stir-crazy. She starts doing mental, really terrifying, crazy stuff, like making toy buses, out of cardboard boxes with little cardboard passengers, the sort of sociopathic shit that we should all be properly concerned about. And she uh, she starts to she starts to see imaginary blood on her hands, so she washes them over and over again. How twenty twenty, eh? Um, and she eventually kills herself, which again I feel is very twenty twenty. Where I, th- I, I I imagine most of us are one disaster away from just going, right, that's it. Let's just end it right there. 
Um, so anyway, right, uh, Macbeth, he's, a, he's at Dunsinane Castle on Dunsinane Hill, and um, Macduff and Malcolm's army, they're approaching the castle, right? And um, Macduff, he instructs his soldiers to disguise their approach by cutting down branches from the trees. And so from the castle to Macbeth, it looks like Burnham Wood is moving towards Dunsinane Hill, the first of the witch's prophecies, right? But still, everything's fine because Macbeth, he can't be harmed by any man of woman born. Now, the army, they take the castle and there's the showdown battle between Macbeth and Macduff. And Macbeth's like that, ha ha, fuck you, Macduff. No man of woman born can possibly harm me. But then Macduff goes like that, I am no of woman born, though. I, from my mother's room, was ultimately ripped. Macbeth suddenly realises that he's got this weird kind of C-section kryptonite. Macduff kills Macbeth, chops off his head and delivers delivers it to Malcolm on a golden platter because, you know, they were right into that kind of ISIS beheading stuff back in the day, you can. So, as I already mentioned earlier, Macbeth... He wasn't the the tyrant that Shakespeare suggests that he was. Um, He was actually a very popular king. And it was the reverse that's true. It was Duncan who was a bit of a gobshite in truth. Uh, Duncan wasn't the big, cuddly, lovable king that Shakespeare makes him out to be. In fact, his ascension to the throne caused controversy at the time. His predecessor was his grandfather, Malcolm II, who had won a fantastic victory against the Angles at the Battle of Carnham in 1018. It's a victory that I discussed on the previous podcast. And Malcolm, he nominated his grandson, Duncan, the Prince of Cumbria, as his successor in 1034. Now, this was controversial at the time because in those days, kings... Kingships were not inherited or even selected, they were elected. It's amazing, isn't it, that the 11th century apparently had more democracy than the bloody 21st century, like the House of Bloody Lords, for Christ's sake. Although, to be fair, most members of the House of Lords were born in the 11th century, or at the very least, are possessed from demons from the 11th century. So Duncan, he was actually a very rash and unpopular king. He embarked on a disastrous attack on Durham in the north of England in 1039. And then he had an equally disastrous a disastrous attempt at imposing his authority on the Highlands, a part of the country that traditionally has given zero fucks about the authority of the King of Scotland. So the real Macbeth, he was descended from the Scots. His father was, uh, he had the title Mormaer of Murray. Um, but his, his father was assassinated by his nephews. So Macbeth, he took revenge. He avenged the death of his father by taking revenge on his cousins. And he had their leader, Gilcom Gain, burned alongside 50 of his men. Now, as well as murdering Gilcom Gain, Macbeth married Gilcom Gain's widow, Gruich, and adopted his son, Lulich. Now, that is some properly fucked up family dynamics right there. Do you know what I mean? Like, murdering your cousin, then marrying his widow and adopting his son. Like, the only part of modern-day Scotland where you would expect to find that kind of fucked up family dynamics would be Dundee, you know? And so the real Lady Macbeth, Gruich, is a woman who married the guy who murdered her husband. That is less Shakespearean and more like Carol Baskin. Folks, do you know what I mean? I think that what the world needs is a version of Macbeth whereby Duncan and Banquo are not murdered by like being stabbed or assassinated or anything like that, but they're actually just fed to live tigers. I mean, you know, it'd be certainly more interesting than floating daggers than that, wouldn't it? Duncan tries to bring Macbeth to heel, but uh, he was killed in battle somewhere near the village of uh, Pitgaveni near Elgin on the 10th of August, 1040. And after the battle, Macbeth is immediately accepted as the King of Scots. 
So Duncan's sons, Malcolm and Donald Bain, they're forced to flee. Uh, Malcolm went south to England, where he became a protege of Edward the Confessor, and Donald Bain, he fled to the Western Isles. And Macbeth, he ruled in peace for the next 17 years, from 1040 to 1057, with the exception of his powerful half-cousin, Thorfinn the Mighty. Now, Thorfinn the Mighty was the, the Norse Earl of Caithness and Sutherland. He'd been uh, given that title by Malcolm II, and his reign was the high point of Viking power in northern Scotland. Uh, Thorfinn had actually assisted Macbeth in defeating Duncan at Pickaveni, but he was a powerful, ruthless, shrewd, but benevolent ruler. He managed to extend his earldom, so he had control of Orkney, the Western Isles, Caithness, Sutherland, it extended deep into central Scotland, and he was recognised as being the most powerful man in northern Britain. It's said that Thorfinn, like Macbeth, also went on pilgrimage to Rome, and there's even record of him killing a Scots king as well. Now, the similarities between Thorfinn and Macbeth are so similar that some historians think some historians think that they may actually be the same person. So the theory is that Thorfinn is the Norse version of the story and that Macbeth is the Celtic. Now, the whole thing is confusing as hell, which is presumably why Shakespeare didn't include Thorfinn in the play. He was like, listen, this is going to confuse kids as much as it is without having to give it a blinking fight club ending. So Malcolm, throughout Macbeth's reign, he had been in England gathering support from Edward the Confessor. And in 1054, Edward backed his ambitions and supported an invasion of Scotland. He allowed Malcolm to raise an army alongside the Danish Earl of Northumbria, Seward. So their mixed army of Anglo-Saxons, Norse, Northumbrians and Scots, they marched north to avenge um, the death of Duncan, Malcolm's father. And they meet up with Macbeth on the 27th of July, 1054, where he is defeated at Dunsinane Hill. Although we can't be entirely sure of the battle's exact location, there is a good chance that the battle took place where Shakespeare said it does. And although it was a decisive victory for Malcolm and Seward, it would be another three years before Malcolm actually would get to Macbeth and be able to declare himself King of Scotland. So unlike the play. In 1057, Malcolm finally had enough strength uh, and Macbeth had lost enough support for Malcolm to be able to march into the um, into Macbeth's heartlands and kind of Murray and Aberdeenshire to hunt him down. Now, Malcolm eventually caught up with Macbeth at Lumphanum, which is a village just... Um, it's, it's in Aberdeenshire, near Aberdeen, where a desperate final stand... It wasn't a battle, it was more a kind of final stand took place between Malcolm and Macbeth. Malcolm defeated Macbeth and, of course, cut off his head, as was the style of the time. But he wasn't quite there just yet. Macbeth's supporters immediately declared his stepson Lulich king of Scotland. But Lulich, well, let's just put it this way. He had the unfortunate nickname of Lulich the Simpleton, probably on account of the fact that he encouraged his subjects to inject bleach and thought that herd immunity was a good idea. He was basically, put it this way, he was no match for Malcolm. Malcolm eventually managed to catch up with Lulich in March 1058 near Huntley. And with Lulich dead, Malcolm finally managed to avenge his father's death and win back the crown and win back the kingdom that his father had lost. In April 1058, he was crowned at Schoon and he would rule the next 35 years as Malcolm III, more commonly known and more commonly remembered as Malcolm Canmore. Macbeth and Lulich are both uh, buried on Iona and Macbeth is remembered as being the the last truly Celtic king of Scotland. Now, the bad mouth of Macbeth, it was not started by Shakespeare. It started 
many, many hundreds of years previously by Malcolm Canmore and the Canmore dynasty who painted him as this kind of murdering usurper, which, I mean, to be fair to Malcolm, that is exactly what he was. Like, he he killed his father and took his throne. But after his death, you had kind of pro-Macbeth stories in the heartlands of of where Macbeth's uh, power centres were and kind of Murray and Aberdeenshire and the Highlands. And to the south of that, you had a lot of anti-Macbeth stuff coming through. And it kind of is a very early start of the the kind of anti-Celtic revisionism of Scottish history that would um, be perpetuated throughout the centuries. So James, we started at the beginning of the podcast, we talked about James I and James VI. He had been told his entire life that his Catholic mother, Mary Queen of Scots, was this kind of papist whore, really, really horrible, nasty stuff. And history has been perpetuated by... By many kind of pro-unionist people, such as, for example, Sir Walter Scott, keen to push the the Normanisation and the Anglicisation of Lowland Scotland, they wanted to to kind of build up that influence and push down the kind of influence of the Celtic Highland culture, because many in Lowland Scotland didn't want to be associated with the kind of Celtic barbarian ruffian Highland culture. Um, of Scotland. And this is probably true, you know, right up to, to close to the end of the 19th century. But thankfully, the good names of, of Scottish figures such as Macbeth and such as Mary Queen of Scots has been rescued in recent years. And so I encourage you folks to, if you're uh, if you're listening to this podcast and you're, you're sitting with a dram, you're on the couch, just to, to raise a glass to Macbeth and say his name out loud. Say it a few times. And listen, if the next production you go to at the Globe Theatre is bollocked up as a result of that, well, I mean, all I can say is this. I mean, it's it's Shakespeare. You know, surely, I mean, surely you knew it was going to be shite before you bought the tickets, no? So each week on the podcast, folks, what I like to try and do is uh, pair up what I was talking about today with a, a suitable whiskey from Scotland, which uh, kind of sits well with, with the... Uh, topics and the places that we were talking about in the podcast today. So today, uh, my suggestion would be a Royal Loch Nagar, which is the distillery that is kept from a geographically closest to Lumfanon, which is where Macbeth, um, saw his final end, and Macbeth, uh, Malcolm, sorry, finally got his revenge. Um, it's a, a really beautiful distillery set in the grounds of the the Royal uh, Deeside Resort of Balmoral. It was an old distillery. Um, that was apparently burnt down by its rivals. It reopened in 1860 under the name of New Loch Nagar, and it got its royal title, its royal kind of seal of approval in 1848 when it was visited by Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. It's a really delicious dram. Uh, it's quite warm and spicy. Uh, and what I do try and do is if I can raise enough money through my Buy Me A Coffee and pa- uh, Patreon accounts, so you can become a patron of the podcast by going on to uh, Patreon and just searching for uh, Montebank History Scotland. Exact same thing on my Buy Me A Coffee. If you enjoyed the pa- the podcast and you'd like to give me a wee pat on the back, buy me a wee pat on the back coffee, you can do so at Buy Me A Coffee. And if I am able to raise enough money, what I'll do is I, uh, I buy someone a bottle of whiskey and I send it to someone who's deserving of it. So you can nominate someone through those channels as well, through um, the Patreon page or through Buy Me A Coffee, through uh, any of my social media accounts, just at Montebank Tours. Just nominate someone. It could be like a key worker, an NHS staff worker. Um, it could just be a patient person, a patient parent, sorry, or just a thoroughly good person. Whoever deserves it, you can drop me a DM or an email as well um, and let me know 
who you would like to send a bottle of whiskey to and I just pick one at random and that's how it works thank you so much for listening folks uh please as i said before support the podcast on buy me a coffee or patreon um follow give me a wee follow on social media as well just at montebank tours and i'll see you next week with our podcast thanks so much for listening cheers bye bye